0: As some of you will know, and I was very grateful for your prayers, I was invited to open last month's session of Edinburgh City Council in prayer in the city chambers in the high street. Some of you also asked what I said. And as I did prepare carefully, although they've not yet reached the stage of the Scottish Parliament where if you lead in prayer there, I understand you have to submit your prayers to be vetted beforehand. Uh, I can tell you exactly what I said. After thanking them for their invitation and assuring them that we, along with many other churches, do pray for them in accordance with what the New Testament commands us to do, to pray for those in authority, uh, this is what I said. Can I remind you, as I'm sure every other minister does standing here, of the motto of our city, written on the coat of arms, Nyside Dominus Frestra. The opening words of the Latin version of a Hebrew hymn, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. This motto associated with Edinburgh since 1647 expresses the conviction that the two great human activities of creation and conservation are of no lasting value without God's help. The response of those who believe that is to pray, seeking God's help. And the Bible assures us in numerous places that God is only too willing to hear and answer. So can I invite you to join me as I lead you in prayer and ask God to help you in the important responsibilities with which He has entrusted you. And then I prayed, and then... I left because they said, do you want to stay for this session? And I said, how long will it go on? And they said, oh, it's a short one, finishes at lunchtime. So um, I said, "Uh, is it discourteous to leave? And they said, no, most ministers usually do leave and don't stay. So uh, I did leave. We pray most when we most realize we need help. We pray least when we least realise we need help. And we least realise we need help when we think our own resources are sufficient. And this applies not just to councils and politicians, but to churches and Christians. During coffee with the Lord Provost, before I went in to pray, she commented to me that she had heard that Charlotte Chapel was a very popular and full church, and asked, how do you account for this when so many other churches are declining. Nisi, Dominus, Fristra. The most dangerous time for a church is when things are going well. When things are going badly, as in this church a century ago when it was reduced to around 30 people, people pray. When they are going well, when the building is full of people and when we've just raised half a million pounds, we are far less likely to pray on. For it seems as though now we don't need God's help. Oh, I know we disagree. But the proof is seen not in what we say, but in whether we pray. The private prayer life of the Christian and the public prayer life of the church are far more accurate barometers of spiritual health than anything we profess verbally. And I say it again, when things are going well, personally or corporately, we are less likely to pray. Not so Jesus. In his gospel, Mark describes, and we saw it last week, the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. Jesus. And the opening day is an astounding success, from a congregation to a crowd, from the healing of a demon-possessed man and a sick woman, to healings from all the sick and demon-possessed of a whole town who gather at the door of the house where Jesus is staying. Finally, picture the scene, late at night. The last sick person is restored. The last demon is expelled. The last of the crowd go home. And Jesus and his disciples, I am sure, fall into a deep and exhausted sleep. What a day! What a triumph for Jesus! He is the talk of the town. But picture this. In the early hours of the next morning, while it is still dark, A single figure among the sleepers rises, quietly goes out to a solitary place and we watch as Jesus prays. Now our theme for this year and for Mark's Gospel is following Jesus. And nowhere is it more important that we follow Jesus to the place of prayer especially when things are going well. If Jesus needed to pray in those circumstances, how much more do we? Hence our title for our study this morning, Prayer and Popularity. Will you turn again to Mark 1, to 45? It helps to have a Bible. If you're a visitor here, we try and preach, explain, proclaim what the Bible says, and you need to follow carefully. Mark 1, 35 to 45, page 1003. Now, it is clear from the other gospel accounts, especially Luke's gospel, that Jesus prayed regularly and on many occasions. Prayer was an integral part of his life, so much so that on one occasion, the disciples of Jesus, watching Jesus at prayer, said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Luke 11, verse 1. However, you will notice something very significant and interesting. I am not preaching a harmony of the Gospels. We're preaching from looking at what Mark particularly says, And you will notice something interesting you may never have noticed before, that Mark only mentions Jesus praying on three particular occasions. And this is the first. At the beginning of his public ministry. I simply want to... Suggest this morning that in the verses that follow, we can see at least two reasons why Jesus prayed at this particular moment, at this particular time. I I try to choose two phrases that I hope will help you to remember this, and I'll explain them as I go along. Here's the first reason keeping on course. You can imagine again the scene. (laughs) It's a lovely story. It's good to think back and try and imagine how these things happen. You imagine, the disciples wake up. Maybe they're late waking up. Maybe there's already a few sick and demon-possessed banging at the door, waiting for service. Where is Jesus? They get up, they rub their eyes, they look around, the sleeping figures as the disciples one by one rise up and they notice something interesting. Jesus is missing. Where is he? They institute a search. Look at verse 36. Mark says, Simon and his companions went to look for him. The word look here, in the original, is a very strong word. Intensive search. Following in someone's tracks. Pursuing someone. One writer suggests it's the word he'd use of a manhunt. Like a bloodhound on the trail of an escaped prisoner. And another says the word suggests some anxiety and not a little impatience. So why are the disciples so anxious and impatient as they begin to search for Jesus? Not because they're concerned about the welfare of their master, though that may be the case, but primarily because he's the star of the show and everybody's looking for him. That's what they say when they finally find him. They say, Jesus, where have you been? Everybody's looking for you. They have their own agenda for the mission of Jesus. Their he doesn't miss out on it. In the NIV application commentary, it's well worth getting and it's available in Wesley Owen or from our own bookstall. Uh, David Garland, the writer, says, This episode is the first hint that the disciples, who were not called disciples here but Simon and his companions, will create more trouble for Jesus than support. They are looking for him in Capernaum because of his miracles, not his words, and the disciples would like to accommodate this surging popularity. And he goes on, as David did in his children's talk, he says, more evening healings with a band concert. Perhaps they could develop a Capernaum healing theme park. And then he goes on to comment, Jesus is not interested in the fleeting adulation of the crowds. Now what I want to say is, I'm sure he's right, but I'm also sure that Jesus is tempted by the fleeting adulation of the crowds because crowds are always a temptation. And I believe that was why he withdrew. As we look through the gospel that wants to show that Jesus is the sin of God, it will also show that Jesus is also the sin of man. He is tempted in every way as we are. And as such he faced real temptation, and the greatest temptation of all was that he might be diverted from the path that his father had marked out for him. He had already faced similar private temptations in the wilderness with the devil who would try to get him to use his miracles for personal gain rather than the father 's will. Now he faces the same kind of public temptations from the crowds in Capernaum. Yes, he is not interested in the fleeting adulation of the crowds, but, I believe, only after he has prayed and refocused on the father 's agenda. His concern is to follow his father 's agenda so he withdraws to pray. You see, so often we think prayer is about us bringing our agenda to God in the hope that he will sanctify it with divine approval and come up with what we, Christian or church, want. But the purpose of prayer is exactly the opposite. When we come to God in prayer, we come so that our agenda might be realigned with his perfect agenda. And the two are often diametrically opposed or at least very different. And this is no more apparent than when things are going well. Because then we can get blown off course. And is it worth, if you you like, prayer is the navigator coming to the compass after hours at sea and realigning the ship's prow, pointing, I'm not very good at sailing, somebody will correct me at the door, but I think this is what they do, realigning the ship's prow in the right direction. Because a day at sea you can drift off course so easily. We said that, I said that Mark only mentions Jesus praying on three occasions. We'll come to the other two later in our study, God willing. Uh, but let me make, I'll just mention them briefly, but each one of them is a moment of crisis in the ministry of Jesus, where he's in danger of being blown off course. Here's the first one in Mark one hundred thirty five. The next is in Mark 6, after Jesus has fed 5,000 well, actually, probably 10,000, because it was 5,000 men, and if you had the women and children, it's probably a lot more than that. And John tells us in his Gospel that Jesus knew that they were about to make him king. They were saying, this is the prophet, this is the man, let's get him, let's make him king, mark Jerusalem at the head of an army of people. And we read that Jesus, knowing this, withdrew up a mountain in order to, to pray. It was another crucial moment when the popularity of Jesus was in danger of diverting him from the task God had called him to. So Jesus withdraws to pray. And if you read John's Gospel carefully, the next day the crowds come again looking for miracles and Jesus begins to teach them the cost of discipleship. And by the end of the day, all the crowds have left except the disciples. What a failure in PR terms. But not in God's terms, he's following the Father's agenda. The third occasion, you all know when Jesus prayed. Every Gospel mentions it. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the cross. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I want to follow your agenda, not my agenda. His natural human inclination was to avoid the cross. So at each of these crucial moments, he prays. So in Mark 1.38, back to our text, he responds to the disciples' exclamation. They say, everyone is looking for you. And what does Jesus say? Hmm, Let's go somewhere else. Striking, isn't it? Everyone is looking for you. Let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages. Why? So that I can preach there also. That is why I've come. Not just come from Galilee, Nazareth, Capernaum. This is why I've come into the world, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. He could have stayed in Capernaum the rest of his life, even to the present day, as the eternal Son of God, still healing people. So there is an endless supply. No, his priority is to preach to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom, which will deal with the root cause of all our problems, and which will culminate in his death on the cross. That is why he's come. But in order to keep on track, the Son of God needs to withdraw to pray. Now, the message is less obvious for us as individual Christians, if you're a follower of Christ, and as a church. If he needed to do that to stay on track, how much more do we need to do that to keep on track? Otherwise, we begin to follow our own agendas. And at the heart of all that we do is proclamation of the Gospel. Whether we do it publicly from a pulpit like this, whether we do it personally when we interact with our friends, we have a message to proclaim. Good news. Great joy for all people. Christmas, Easter, the whole works. It's all good news. That's our priority. That's our focus. And all other things, important though they may be, are an aid to that. that. Yes, I'm delighted we're putting up a new building at Nidri. I'm just looking forward to seeing it and already saying... Will it be Christmas? you we have a celebration? You know, when's it going to happen? But it's a means to an end that the people of Nigeria will hear the good news of Jesus Christ and repent and put their faith in him. Yeah, I think it's a miracle that we've raised over half a million pounds without any strings attached. But a far greater miracle will be seeing people come to faith in Christ in that very needy area and a real church being built there. And that will only happen in Nidri and in Charlotte Chapel if we make it our priority. There are all sorts of other worthy things that will divert us off course and only prayer will enable us to stay on course. One of my great worries for myself as a pastor of a church like this is that I sometimes worry am I just feeding people week by week who are getting no exercise? Like Jesus fed the crowds. Oh, I'm not feeding with loaves and fishes but... We're feeding you with songs and sermons. There's nothing wrong with that, providing that they make us gospel people who are focused on sharing the good news of getting involved in gospel work, reaching out to other people. That's our focus. There's been a lot on television recently about obesity in our society. I worry about spiritual obesity, which is far more serious. So if I can say it kindly to you, my fat friends, Get out there. Do some exercise. Get out there with the gospel. Tell you a good place to exercise. You say, Charlotte, Chapel is full of all these capable people. They don't need me. Okay, there's this place called Midri where they're just desperate for people to go and exercise their spiritual gifts and roll up their sleeves. And you say, oh, oh, it wouldn't suit me too much. Why not? Okay, if God hasn't called you there, but think about it. Say, maybe God is calling me to go and You know, work off a bit of spiritual fat and get a bit more lean in using the gospel and getting it out. And if not, where is God calling you to be a gospel witness? So Jesus, obviously to the astonishment of Simon and the other disciples, says, leave the popularity of Capernaum, go to other towns. He prayed to keep on track. Okay, here's a second reason I believe why he prayed. Not only to keep on track, but also to keep in character. Mark's purpose in writing his gospel is to show that Jesus is the Son of God. And that is seen, observed, in everything that Jesus does as he goes out into the world. And again, while he's the Son of God by nature, he is also fully human as well. So he is tempted in every way as we are. And only through prayer does he realize he will maintain his relationship with his Father. And then keeping character as he goes out into the world and interacts with people. With the fallen world. Showing that he indeed is the Son of God. If you know your church history you'll know that at different times churches have emphasized either the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ and the emphasis has been skewed. And I think today one of our great dangers is when we read a gospel like Mark, we forget that Jesus was fully human. He needed to spend time with his Father, to seek his Father's will, to seek his Father's, to interact with his Father on a personal level. So, notice as an example then, the the incident that follows, that reveals God's character in the way that Jesus deals with this leper. I want to suggest to you that what we see is that like Father, like Son in his encounter with the leper. Uh, The word used here for leprosy covers a whole range of skin diseases right down to ringworm and may or may not have included what we call modern leprosy, that is Hansen's disease. Luke tells us in his Gospel that this man was full of leprosy, suggesting a very serious and obvious life-threatening case. Uh, the law of Moses in, in our Old Testament, particularly in the book of Leviticus, chapter 14, uh, gave great details about how you identified these kind of skin complaints and how you dealt with them. They were to be examined by a priest, and if the identification was positive there was a negative outcome, isolation and ostracism from society. Uh, the reason that these people were forced to stay apart from society and cry unclean and clean if anybody came near them was not just because of the fear of physical contamination and catching some disease, but far more importantly for a Jew, the fear of ritual contamination. You would be banned from worship as with anyone who came into contact with you. And so as these serious forms were inevitably fatal, it was a living death. Now, the news of Jesus must have reached the ears of this man. And in his desperation, regardless of social taboos, he comes and falls on his knees before Jesus and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Look at that in verse 40. Notice what he's saying. He is sure that Jesus can heal him. He is not certain that he will heal him. So he wonders, how will Jesus respond? And no doubt the disciples and anyone else there would wonder too. How will Jesus, this new teacher, deal with this man ritually unclean? Now, notice as the story follows, the response of Jesus, which is wholly in keeping with the character of God his Father. First of all, you see strong emotions. He is filled with compassion. The word used there is a word of very strong emotions. In the ancient world, they thought your bowels were the seat of your, of your emotions. And that's the word that's used here. He's moved in his bowels. Deeply moved emotionally. It, it is a word constantly used of Jesus in the Gospels. It is the word used when he, when he sees a demon-possessed boy and his distraught father. It is the word used of Jesus when he sees the sick, the suffering, the lonely. It is the word Jesus uses in his parable of the prodigal son to describe the father who sees the runaway returning home and he's filled with compassion and runs to meet him. It tells us of a God who is not dispassionate, but cares deeply about us and our world and who is not remote but has become one of us in the person of his son who reflects his strong feelings as he meets with us in our need. We can take these things for granted, but it is a most remarkable thing that God is moved by suffering and that his son shows that. In fact, in one of the, several of the Greek texts of the, on which Mark's Gospel is based, the word is a different word. The word is actually "moved with anger. And many people think that's probably the original that was written first of all and, and a scribe sort of changed it later to make it more amenable as he thought to the character of Jesus. John 11, describing the story of the raising of Lazarus uses some very powerful words to describe when Jesus sees the weeping women and the death of Lazarus, the effect it has he is deeply moved within him, moved with anger moved with grief and what an encouragement to us, especially those who suffer when we wonder, does anyone care? What a challenge to those of us who experience that compassion in our own lives. Do we feel as Christ feels? How do you feel as a Christian, as distinct to the person who isn't a Christian? How do you feel when you watch the television news? See those poor people drowned in Morecambe Bay, the folk in Eddingston as you look at the world that we live in and the terrible things if you saw that program last week about North Korea you think how on earth can human beings treat other human beings like that are you moved with compassion with the compassion of Christ or does it just go over our heads and we be compassionate about it and most of all as Christians are we not moved by the fallen world that we live in and the mess that it's in in rebellion against God do we feel with the compassion of Christ But that is not all we see in the response of Jesus. We also see strong actions. Jesus could have healed the man with a a word and at a distance. As the man ran up, he could have said, Oh, okay, yes, be healed. A long distance, maybe. Instead, he reaches out and does something remarkable. He touches the leper. Others may fear contamination, but the sinless Son of God has no such fears. In touching him, he shares in the humanity of the man, identifying with him fully. Many people, of course, have commented on how Princess Diana made this breakthrough in the treatment of AIDS because, as a public profile figure, she visited AIDS sufferers and touched them and hugged them. How much more the Son of God and those who do the same in His name. But the human touch is also accompanied by a divine touch. And it says, Jesus reached out His hand and said, Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Again the words reached out his hand have echoes in the Old Testament particularly in regard to God especially in rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, for example, Deuteronomy 26 verse 8. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. It's a picture of God in the Old Testament reaching out with an outstretched arm. Of course he didn't do it physically, it's a metaphor. But in Christ, what is metaphor becomes reality as Jesus reaches out and touches this man. And now the Lord's power is at work through his Son. That is the God who can save. The God of power we proclaim. Again, Jesus acts in keeping with his Father's character. Notice thirdly, strong words. Very interesting, the word he uses here. Jesus sent him away, verse 43, at once with a strong warning. The word is actually a verb, a single verb. It expresses deep emotion. Again, literally... Translators tried to translate it. It says Jesus groaned at him, growled at him, upbraided him, roared at him. It's a word used of a horse snorting in anger. You might not expect this of Jesus. But what he says to the man is of utmost seriousness and importance. See to it you don't tell this to anyone, verse 44, but go and show yourself to the priest. Offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. In some schools, especially in America, they have things with the kids where they bring objects and it's called show and tell. Do you want to remember what Jesus here said to this man? He said, show. He said, show and don't tell. He used to go and show himself to the priests in order to comply with the law of Moses. You see, if you healed a blind man or a lame man or a deaf man, it's pretty obvious he was cured. But with something like leprosy, it was far more, you needed to prove it. And so there were guidelines laid down by which the person went to the priest and the priest examined them and gave them a clean bill of health. Again, you can read it in Leviticus 14. And he says it will be a testimony to them. Very interesting point here. All the law of Moses could do for this man was to condemn him. No cure. What Christ does is to cleanse him and set him free. The law of Moses is good. We've been thinking about it in our studies in the Ten Commandments. There's nothing wrong with the law, but it shows us that we can't keep the law. It condemns us. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's a testimony to the priests, but it's also a testimony to a wider audience. Another writer, David Hewitt, comments, it's worth noting that Jesus apparently heals less and less as his ministry goes on, his healing miracles were real but secondary. They were a testimony to his message. When he healed a man with leprosy, he was demonstrating his compassion for the unwanted and the unloved. But the man is strictly told not to share this with anyone else. Don't tell. Jesus doesn't want unwanted publicity. There's been a lot of speculation. Why does Jesus say this? Surely, when you, when you become a Christian, the best thing to do is to tell people what God has done for you. Yes, it is today, but not then. Jesus knows that this kind of publicity will divert him again from his true uh, mission, his purpose in coming into the world. So it hinders the ministry of Jesus. He probably knows this man is the type who will talk to everyone, which is why he speaks so strongly to him. But all to no avail, in direct disobedience we read, instead the man went and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And the inevitable outcome follows. As a result, verse 45 Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet still people came to him from everywhere. Now again, there's a challenge to us here. If this was true of the Son of God, that he needed to withdraw to pray in order to keep in character with his Father, to show his Father's character, how much more do we? There's a very popular slogan about prayer, which you used to see on plaques, and you can probably still get them in Wesley Owen. It says, prayer changes things too true. It does. But i tell you something far more important. Prayer changes people. Prayer changes people. Again, just as many people think that prayer is convincing God to do what we want, we often think that prayer is getting God to change his character, his inclination about something, so that he becomes more benevolent and amenable to what we want. But God's character is unchanging and unchangeable. It doesn't need to be changed. It's perfect in every way. The problem is not God's character, but our character that needs to be changed. And when you repent and believe, if you're a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, God adopts you into his family and he puts his Holy Spirit who comes to live within you. That's why Jesus said it's like being born again. There's new life within you. And our character is not transformed instantly. But a process of transformation begins to take place in us as we become more like the Father, more like the Son. The problem is that if we're not careful, we begin to revert back to our old character. I mean, you can actually prove this and and don't do this. Some of you have done it and proved it already, but don't, don't try this. This is one of these things, you know, don't try this at home, all right? Stop coming to Charlotte Chapel for a whole month or any other church. Don't spend any time in prayer. Never read the Bible. Have nothing to do with Christians. And I'll tell you what, if you're a Christian, you will begin to behave like you used to before you became a Christian. And you'll be amazed how quickly it happens. Some of us prove it when we go on holiday for a fortnight and take a break from Christianity as well as work. It's it's inevitable, isn't it? We've all proved it. So what do you do? You stay close to God and God's people. And you stay close to God's word that reveals what he wants you to be like. And you stay close to God in prayer because as you spend time in prayer with God, so you become more like the one you spend time with. Because you're listening to what he says. You're responding to his character. And this is done through the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says, We with unveiled faces, all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, people think this is very legalistic. If you're a Christian, now you've got to pray and read the Bible. Otherwise, God will drop a ton of bricks on your head or you'll have a bad accident or something terrible will happen to you. It's like saying, you know, now you're married, you've got to spend time with your wife. If you need to say that to somebody, it's something seriously wrong. It's the means by which we spend time with God, we become more like the Father. We become more like the Son. And we can only do this if we stay close to Him. And we spend time in prayer. That's why I chose that old hymn. We don't sing it very often nowadays, but I don't know any modern versions that express the same truth. "'Take time to be holy, the world rushes on.'" spend much time in secret with Jesus alone by looking for Jesus like him thou shalt be thy friends in thy conduct his likeness shall see now I ask you you go out from Charlotte Chapel to meet your family and friends or you go off tomorrow to work what do your friends see in your conduct? do they see Jesus? do they say God, there's something different about you It won't be an overnight transformation, but there will gradually be that process of change that begins to take place so that people will see that you've been with Jesus. Now, it will not happen automatically. I have to tell you that. Some of us think it will by osmosis. It will only happen as you spend time with God, in prayer, as you read his word. If you spend more time in television than in prayer, then you'll become more like what you see on television despite what the experts say. It follows logically, it must do. You begin to adopt the language, the thought patterns. And I'm not talking about after the nine o'clock watershed, I'm talking about before it, and the soaps, and everything else that we watch and see. It affects our character. And if Jesus needed to do this, in order as he went out into the world to reflect the Father's character, to keep in character, how much more do we? So, finished. Let's keep following Jesus. And let's keep praying. Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote over a century ago, a praying master like Jesus can have no prayerless servants. Praying master like Jesus can have no prayerless servants. So let us pray now.